my wife, Laura, works in a dermatology office. And as a result, we are the happy recipients of lots of dermatology products, free samples, sunscreen, face moisturizers, and of course, anti-wrinkle creams. As these products and their manufacturers are trying to make it to the mainstream market, you can guess what slogan is attached to the bottle, to the paperwork. Dermatology tested and approved. Dermatologist tested and approved. The endorsement of doctors is intended to lend credibility to the product that people might receive it and take it and use it. We come to a passage this morning where the Apostle Paul seeks to establish the credibility of his ministry. And some doubt and negativity has entered the minds of some of the people that he sought to minister to in Thessalonica regarding the integrity and the credibility of his ministry. And so in response, Paul points to the ultimate authority, the ultimate ministry evaluator, that he is tested and approved. His ministry is upright. He gets the thumbs up from God, the ultimate evaluator. Paul's ministry is God-tested and God-approved. That is his arguments here in 1 Thessalonians. And his desire in pointing to God, the source of his approval, is that his people there in Thessalonica would receive his ministry. And the words of the letter that he writes to them after visiting them and ministering among them, some doubt and negativity, some skepticism has crept in. And he seeks to point to his approval, not in himself, but in God, that his people might better receive, welcome his words and his ministry to them. So I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. On the Bibles, on your seats, you can find that on page 986. Page 986. This morning, we continue our sermon series that we began last Sunday uh, in this New Testament letter. Paul writes, he's two of them, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We're going to spend the next nine weeks of the summer here in this letter. And the title of this series is Power in Life, Hope in Death. Power in Life, Hope in Death. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides power for you to live the Christian life. And it provides hope for you as you look at the reality of your own death, which stares each one of us down. The gospel of Jesus provides power for life and hope in death. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. If you're here today and you need a Bible, I always need to mention this. We have free Bibles in the lobby. Please take one. Um, the black hardback covers. We'd love for you to take a Bible and give one to a friend as well. Uh, page 986. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 in 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As First Thessalonians chapter 2 unfolds, we see that Paul feels the need to defend his ministry, to defend his credibility as a pastor and minister to them. And we're not completely sure why he does this. And perhaps the, the frequent visits of charlatan Greek philosophers we know from first century Greco-Roman history that there were people who went around like today seeking to say what people's itching ears wanted to hear, seeking to, with their rhetoric, entertain and would collect money to do so. Perhaps that was what was creeping into this church. Maybe the presence of false teachers, Jewish false teachers. Maybe just the shadow of doubt over Paul's ministry because he had to leave so quickly as a result of the persecution that arose after three weeks of ministry. And he didn't return promptly. Rather, he sent Timothy, his disciple in the faith, his understudy, he sent Timothy after a few months to check on them. We mentioned last week they were probably a little unsettled by that. Why didn't Paul, the lead guy, come? So whatever reason, one or all or some of these, Paul feels the need to defend the credibility of his ministry to these people that he worked and preached and ultimately planted a church among he seeks to argue that his ministry is tested and approved by the most important evaluator there is, God himself. God's testing and approval of Paul's ministry is what he holds out. As we read and unpack Paul's defense of his ministry here in chapter 2, we're going to examine Paul's mission, Paul's motivation, and Paul's methods. And see how they are tested and approved. Paul's mission, his motivation, and his methods. We'll see the endurance of his mission, the purity of his motivation, and the sensitivity of his methods. The endurance in the mission, the purity in his motivation, and the sensitivity in his methods. And here's the, the theme, the sort of big idea here. Faithful Christian ministry involves endurance in the mission, purity in the motivation, and sensitivity in the methods. Faithful Christian ministry involves endurance in the mission, purity in the motivation, 
and sensitivity in the methods. The mission, the motivation, and the methods. First, faithful Christian ministry involves endurance in the mission. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Paul starts this chapter off, For you yourselves know, brothers, and that's a collective term. He's not just speaking to a bunch of dudes. It's, the idea is brethren in the KJV, men and women, collective term for Christians in the church. We want you all to know, brothers and sisters in the faith, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, our coming to you was not hollow, empty in content, empty in character. No, our, our coming to you was of substance, substance in content. The gospel was preached with boldness, and they were converted by the power of God. It was not futile. It was not hollow. It was of substance. Tangibly could see it. Put your hands to it. And not empty of character. Paul's character was upright and faithful. He was no charlatan seeking to collect an offering. Not seeking to say what their itching ears wanted to say. Wanted to hear. It was a ministry of substance, not in vanity. Substance in content, substance in character. One of the ways that the substance of a person's ministry is tested is through suffering, and that's where Paul points us next. Notice what he says in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction, much conflict. Paul is pointing to two instances of persecution that he endured back to back. You can see these in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17. In Acts 16, Paul is accused, beaten, and imprisoned with Silas in Philippi. Shamefully treated, we see. After being released by the miracle of God... Delivered from that prison, released from the Roman authorities, he then goes to Thessalonica. We see this in chapter 17. And for three weeks, he does gospel ministry, preaching in the synagogues. And a collection of Jews and Greeks miraculously are converted. They come to believe. But then after some jealous Jews in Thessalonica stir up the rabble, the rioters, create all kind of political upheaval, they chase Paul out of Thessalonica, Paul's host... A man named Jason, who became a believer in Thessalonica, a man of means who hosted Paul, likely in his household. He was the, the host of the church plant. They take him, they arrest him, he's got to pay a fine, and he's released. There's much conflict that surrounds Paul's ministry, both in Philippi and in Thessalonica. This was part and parcel of Paul's pastoral ministry. Suffering. He's basically saying, you can expect it. And in fact, it is a test of true, authentic ministry. We were treated shamefully, he said. A verb that Jesus uses to describe his own ministry in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, 32, Jesus has this death prediction that will happen in Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Same verb that Paul uses. You see, Paul's ministry was 
cruciform. It was shaped like Jesus' cross. Paul followed in the footsteps of his Lord. They shamefully treated Jesus, and they shamefully treated Paul. And this is a linguistic tie, the vocabulary. It's the same word that Jesus used to describe his own ministry, shamefully treated. True gospel ministry is cruciform. True gospel ministry takes the shape of the cross. And what I mean by that is it involves suffering. It is not easy. If you're out for comfort and convenience, you ought not be a Christian. True discipleship, true ministry in this world takes the shape of the cross. It is cruciform. It involves affliction and suffering. Please, and I'm preaching to myself because I so want to believe the cultural narrative that it's about comfort and ease and pleasure and convenience. That's not the way of Christ. That's not the way of Christ's servant Paul or anybody else who bears the name of Jesus. True gospel ministry, true discipleship takes the shape of the cross. It is cruciform in its shape. And persecution is the test of true ministry, of true discipleship. It tests the genuineness of the substance, just like a refiner's fire tests the genuineness of precious metals, gold and silver. Only those who are convinced of the truth of Christ, who are walking in the truth of Christ, will suffer for the sake of Christ. If you don't really believe it, and if you're living a duplicitous life, masquerading as a Christian, when the heat is turned up, you're jumping out of the kettle. True discipleship, true ministry is tested through persecution. When the heat is turned up, you remain. The tested genuineness of your faith remains. Why suffer if you don't believe it? You wouldn't do it. Why suffer if you know it's not true? You wouldn't do it. But those who endure suffering, it tests the genuineness of their faith in Christ, their ministry in Christ's name. Persecution is the test of true ministry and discipleship. Friends, I want to encourage you to cling to Christ when you face difficulty for his sake. He knows what it is to face difficulty. He knows, as we said, what it is to be shamefully treated. He can sympathize with you. He is with you in the midst of that difficulty and affliction and persecution and mistreatment, whether it's at work or in your neighborhood or in your school or whatever setting it is. He's with you there. He will never leave you. And as you cling to him, he's going to empower you through it. He won't leave you in the midst of it. He'll use you through it. Cling to Christ in the hour of difficulty and trial. Faithful Christian ministry involves endurance in the mission. Secondly, faithful Christian ministry involves purity in the motivation. Purity in the motivation. Let's look again at verses 3 through 6. Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Paul was not a charlatan. He was not a false teacher operating on a false motive, seeking to take advantage of people through deception and error. His ministry was approved by God himself. God entrusted to Paul the precious gift of the gospel to herald faithfully. And that's what Paul did. His ministry was tested by God himself. God who tests our hearts. Notice what Paul says there. God examines the inner workings of our hearts. There is no pulling the wool over his eyes, as my mother used to say. You cannot fool God. You might be able to fool people for a time, but you will never fool God. He tests the inner workings of our hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows us from the inside out, our every motivation. He sees. Yet sometimes we walk and live in this kind of false notion that he can't see us for walking in the shadows and in the dark. He knows our hearts. He sees us from the inside out. Paul was not greedy for financial gain. Notice how Paul, three times over, points to God as his ultimate witness and evaluator. Approved by God, tested by God. God is his, his, is his witness. You see, Paul did ministry before an audience of one. God's opinion was the only opinion that mattered for the apostle paul he did his ministry he lived his life before an audience of one god is my witness god is my source of approval god is the one who tests the genuineness of my faith he's pointing to god a profound and rich theology that paul lived and served out of paul points to a few powerful false motivations that I want to highlight and warn us of. These are dangerous, they're prevalent. Number one, false motivation, people-pleasing. Verse four, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Oh, the root of theological compromise is often people-pleasing. We cave under the pressure of people. You know, you look at Pontius Pilate in the Passion narrative in the Gospels. What caused Pilate to cave under the pressure of the people? Giving the Lord Jesus over when he knew he was innocent. It was political pressure. He wanted the affections of the people. Popularity. It's the root of ministry compromise and theological crumbling. is people-pleasing. How does people-pleasing impact your own life and ministry as a Christian in service to others? How are you pandering for the approval of other people over and against the approval that you already have in God's eyes? Greg Gilbert, who's written several helpful books that we have on our bookcase, What is the Gospel? Who is Jesus? Why trust the Bible? He writes this about people-pleasing. If you seek to please people, you will be perpetually insecure. You will live by your fans and you will die by your critics. Unstable, insecure, your life will be like this. 
wanting to hear the approval of people, surrounding yourself by the yes people, the affirmation people, living in fear of the critical people. You'll live by your fans, you'll die by your critics. People pleasing is unstable ground. Brothers and sisters, stand upon the solid ground of God's approval. His opinion matters most. It's going to carry the day into eternity. It doesn't matter what people think. And I say this, preaching it to myself, because it's one of my foremost sins. It's dangerous as a pastor. All these people, you want their approval. You pastor them. You know their proclivities. You're tempted to duck portions of the Bible that are going to press on those proclivities. Ooh, it's pray for me. Pray for me to be a faithful preacher of the word and to care about the Lord's opinion foremost because your best care is going to come out of that. People-pleasing, powerful false motivation. Number two, greed. Greed, verse five. Nor do we come to you with a pretext for greed. The love of money has taken out many a minister. The love of money has derailed many a Christian. What is your motivation for life and ministry? Financial provision in ministry for, for a pastor is appropriate. Greedy gain is inappropriate. It's appropriate to be provided for. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. The worker's worth his wages, especially those who labor in the ministry of teaching and preaching. You ought, you ought to pay pastors. That's a, that's a godly thing. But if ministers, pastors are out for greedy gain, that's a problem. It's a false motivation that will lead to sinfulness and the abuses of the office. Beware the false motivation of greed. Beware people-pleasing. Beware greed. Thirdly, finally, beware self-glorification. Notice what he says in verse 6. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or else or others. The sooner we realize that life is not about ourselves, not about our glory, our notoriety, our reputation, our fame, the better we're going to be. You can't live the Christian life like that. You were never intended to be a glory absorber. You were designed to be a glory reflector. That's how God has wired all of us. We're not intended to absorb glory for ourselves, but to reflect glory back to God. That's what it is. To be a servant of Jesus, to be, a, to be truly human is to be a glory reflector back to God. Fame, notoriety, glory are not ours. You, you'll be crushed under them. They're only for God. Beware people-pleasing. Beware greed. Beware self-glorification. Faithful Christian ministry involves endurance in the mission Purity in the motivation. Thirdly and finally, sensitivity in the methods. Sensitivity in the methods. We see this sensitivity, verses 6 through 12. Just hear Paul's pastoral heart. Though we could have made demands upon you as apostles of Christ, rather we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. What does Paul mean? We could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What Paul's referring to is he reserved the right to be supported materially, financially, from the people that he ministered to. He speak, speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But he would often 
withhold that right for the sake of ministry so as not to be a burden on the people that he pastored. You see, in Paul's mind, Christian charity overrode Christian liberty. He had the liberty to take up a collection to be supported, but he chose Christian charity, and by that I mean love, love. He, he let his love override his liberty for the sake of ministry among them so that he could be sensitive to their needs, gentle among them, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. He says in verse 9, You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. What is Paul saying? I was bivocational when I did ministry in Thessalonica. Paul had a trade. He was a tent maker. He worked his fingers to the bone night and day so as not to have to collect material support from them, all the while preaching the gospel to them. He was sensitive, thoughtful to their needs, to their situation, did his ministry accordingly. And there's this first image of tenderness. There's two of them in the passage. Here's the first. Two familial images of tenderness. She was gentle among them as a nursing mother taking care of her children, tender and kind and compassionate, supremely aware of, of his children's needs, just like a nursing mother is aware of her children's needs. He had great love and compassion. I'm going to encourage you in this church or whatever church the Lord leads you to, if you happen to move, I want to encourage you to, to let love be a metric by which you evaluate your elders. There's lots of imperfections that leaders can have. But one thing that you really need to see and know is that your pastor loves you. That the elders in the church, they care about you. They're tender towards you. That doesn't mean like soft and squishy all the time. It just means like they're walking with you. They're good shepherds. They want to love you. They give us grace when we make mistakes, but you, by and large, you need to see that your elders love you. They care about your life and they want to see you follow Jesus. You got to see that. If you're not seeing that, speak up. The love of Paul for his people continues to just gush forward. Verse 8. It's almost uncomfortable to read this. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become so dear to us. This is Paul, a man speaking like this, so affectionately desirous of you. We loved you that much. We were ready not just to share the gospel, but our very lives because you've become so dear to us. Do you hear the heart of Paul? Do you hear the heart of a pastor? The love that he had. Again, this, this, is, this is what we should see readily among leaders and members in a church. Love and compassion. And then this powerful tool in ministry that is gospel hospitality. Notice Paul wasn't just content to share the gospel verbally. He was going to share the gospel through hospitality. Spending time with people in the home, across a table, 
at mealtimes. Rosario Butterfield has written a very helpful book on this entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. What a great title. What a great title. The gospel comes with a house key. There's a synergy that comes with the spoken gospel and then the lived out gospel life on life, doing life with people. Listen, your non-Christian friends are going to sniff out if you're just sharing the gospel for a conversion number, a tally number. They're going to smell that. What they need to smell and see better is that you love them. You're engaging with them. You're in it for the long haul. You want to invite them into your lives, into your homes. We were eager not just to share the gospel of God, but our very lives. Are we, as a people, eager to share our lives with the people that God has put in our path? Certainly in the household of faith, yes. But outside that household of faith, welcoming people into our homes. I know it's a little bit hard. It's uncomfortable. We're coming on the better side of COVID. Praise God for that. Are you willing to open up your home and be hospitable for the sake of the gospel? Because there's a synergy that happens when the gospel is spoken and the gospel is tangibly lived in community. Who can you invite into your home for coffee, for a meal, for a Bible study, for a conversation? It is powerful. The gospel comes with a house key. In verse 11, we see the second image of tenderness. Paul says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As tender is a loving father to his children, so Paul was with his children in the faith there in Thessalonica patient, teaching them, encouraging them, cheering them on, protecting them from harm. It's the image of a faithful father tenderly caring for his children. That's what he sought to do. The incredible power of tenderness in ministry. Tenderness and sensitivity are key as you minister to one another. We, we pray that God would open up our lives to one another, that we might be transparent, share our sins, confess to one another. The only safe way to do that is if you know that someone is going to be tender with you and compassionate towards you. Yes, we need to be bold, but boldness and tenderness merge together. Speak truth and love, Paul says in Ephesians 4. Compassion and conviction, these things are, are tied together. Truth and love, compassion and conviction, tenderness and boldness. That is how ministry happens in a local church and outside of a local church. Be tender with people. You know, you can be all right in your content and all wrong in your delivery and your timing. Be thoughtful, be sensitive and tender as you minister to one another. Faithful Christian ministry involves endurance in the mission, purity in the motivation, and sensitivity in the methods. And notice what the goal of faithful Christian ministry is. Verse 12. Christians walking with God in a worthy way. 
I tenderly shepherded you like a father with his children, exhorting you, encouraging you, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of God. That's Paul's goal, to see people walking with the Lord. That is a picture of faith and obedience, trust and obedience, walking with the Lord. That's what Christianity, that's what discipleship's all about, walking with the Lord in a worthy way, living in such a way that honors the cost of your salvation. That's what Paul's talking. A worthy life is one that realizes the cost to deliver that life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. The cost of our salvation informs the quality of our lives. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your body. You're not your own. Honor God with your life. Live a worthy life. Not a shabby life that soils the cost involved in your salvation. The goal of Paul's ministry among the Thessalonians, and the goal of our ministry to one another and to the people in our lives today is that we would walk in a worthy way, walk in a manner that honors the Lord and honors the cost of our salvation, the precious cost at the cross. May we live worthy lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the gift that it is to have it in our own language, to read and study it with freedom, to come to a gathering like this, to hear it shared and spoken. Well, I pray that we would do faithful ministry in this local church and outside of this local church, Lord, that we would endure difficulty in the mission that our hearts would be pure in our motivations in ministry. Father, I pray that we would be supremely sensitive in our methods as well. That we and others might walk in a manner worthy of God, worthy of the cost of our salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.